Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. And the, and the stock price went from 79 at the time we entered the deal, and it's now 190-something. So but they've, they've been very successful, a great medical device uh, company. That clip was from Rick Mangum, our guest for this week's episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Mark Goldman, a CPA and the owner of whereaccountantsgo.com. I invited Rick on the show because along with his experience at the national firm Ernst & Young, or EY, and his decade of experience with Clear Channel, or iHeartMedia as it's known now, He's also spent several years as CFO for a startup as it grew from about 20 million in revenues to eventually being sold for about 300 million. I think you'll enjoy this episode, not just from the aspect of it being an interesting story, but also from the educational standpoint. Personally, I think it's worth at least an hour or two of MBA credit. I know you're gonna love this one. Without further ado, here's my interview with Rick Mango. Thank you for accepting the invitation to come on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time out to share your story and and really your insights with our audience. Thank you very much. Mark, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to share some thoughts. No problem. Thank you. Well, you've had a, a very eventful career that seems to have covered public accounting and, and some very large corporations and then some high growth startups as well, or at least one that I know of. I figured your story of, of how you made each one of those moves and sort of what you learned along the way would be of great benefit to our listeners. Before we get into the, the more present stories, the, your present role, et cetera, which I definitely want to cover, let's start back where it all began, though. How did you initially even consider accounting as a potential career? What led you down that path? First of all, I was I actually played on a golf scholarship for one year at San Antonio College way back when they had a golf team. That was uh, way back when. Then I transferred to UTSA after I figured out golf was not going to lead me to a career. And I was majoring in political science at the time at UTSA. And I took a course called uh, The Politics of American Business. And I ended up liking business and, and wanting to go into business. So I took an accounting class and it seemed to me, seemed to fit me very well. And the actual name of the book was the, the language of business. So I like that foundation. So I switched to an accounting major. Again, this was probably my second year in college at UTSA. And then I ended up transferring to UT Austin and getting an accounting degree there. 
even though people advise me that's a very hard major up at UT, but uh, it, it was something that uh, I enjoyed and was successful at. So that's how I got into accounting. <laughs> Actually, my, my last guest mentioned that intermediate to almost, almost knocked him out, <laughs> but, but he stuck with it. He was happy. <laughs> so my my roughest class was tax. So tax really? one did not seem as logical to me. And I had it in the summertime from a TA up at UT and was my favorite class. So, but tax kind of comes around later on in your career. So it catches up with you eventually. <laughs> yes, sir. So I, I see online that you went to work with Ernst & Young. Was that directly out of college? That was directly out of college. I actually accepted with UT the, the fall of my last year. So I actually had the position with Ernst & Young, Ernst & Winnie at the time in San Antonio, which later became Ernst & Young. Okay. And uh, so I was very pleased to have a position coming out of college because I needed the money back then too. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I take it you didn't start in tax. I did. I'd started in audit because I just liked accounting. I liked the auditing when I was in college, the auditing classes. I actually took advanced auditing and then did well on the CPA exam in that section. So that was something I liked, and I liked the diversity of, of that when I was with Ernst as well. Okay. Did you pursue the CPA exam right out of college? Yes, I passed two parts when I was in, two out of three you could take back when we were in college, and I passed the other two parts the next time. And actually at Ernst & Young, if you didn't pass it within uh, two years, you were uh, no longer with the firm. So it was highly emphasized, and it was very important for all the, the young accountants. Interesting. Yeah, we see we see so many people wait these days to, to pursue it. They take some time off and Obviously, that has consequences sometimes. So, makes a lot of sense. So now you were with EY for for quite some time. It says online twelve years. Did you have any specialty during that period, or what? What caused you to decide to to pursue that for that long? Uh, I, for one, I think a public accounting with a big four accounting firm is a fantastic place for a young person out of school because you're going to work with a lot of other young professionals and you're, you're working hard and it's a very bright, intelligent, ambitious group. So I, I, for me, it was just a fantastic environment. I started work and, and specialized probably in, in healthcare was one of my specialties. I did some manufacturing. I did oil and gas. King Ranch was a, a big client, so I learned a little bit about ranching. Of course, they had oil and gas, big oil and gas operation as well. But I would say it was more, I enjoyed the diversity. For example, the Argyle Club was a client, uh, Trailways Bus Manufacturing, Alamo Group, which is still thriving business today in Seguin, making commercial grade mowing equipment or agricultural equipment dabbled in oil and gas, you know, understood the exploration and production aspects of it. So I, I got a, a wide background in, in many, many businesses. And so it was something that I really enjoyed. And, and also, you know, getting to know business people in San Antonio. Interesting. Yeah, that is a lot of variety. I, I didn't realize that you would have worked in quite so many industries. Is that because of the time you spent or was pretty much that entire 12-year period that diverse? Both, I would say. I, I kind of 
I wanted to get a diversity of clients to, to help pre- prepare me at the time. And, you know, sometimes I, I think there are people that, that become very successful when they specialize, whether they, whether it's taxation, corporate taxation, or a specific industry such as healthcare, or oil and gas, or, or manufacturing, or you, you name it. I mean, you see people who are very successful and, and develop an expertise in those particular industries. And I was more of a, you know, I, although you've heard the term jack of all trades, master of none, that's partly applicable, but you, you, you prepare yourself for just about anything. And it did help me later in my career because I did switch gears in my career a couple of different times, zigging and zagging out of different industries. So I, I feel like even now I can, I can be competent and able in, in many different industries. Okay. Okay. What, what do you feel led to your success in, in terms of moving up within EY? You know, continuing to be promoted. Any specific trait? Well, one, I, you know, I had some, some great mentors, and, and that's, that's key throughout your career. But I, I think they, uh, they worked with me and believed in me, and I, and I worked hard and, and rewarded the guys I worked with in trying to run the audits efficiently, effectively, and and get get the proper technical solutions, and uh, and and I enjoyed working with uh, some of those mentors. David King, A.P. Jennings, Sam Bell was a managing partner when I started, but those guys I will still you know, maintain contact with today, and they're they're uh, just uh, fantastic you know friends as well. Okay. But I think, you know, working hard, you, you work your butt off when you work through the senior level, through the early manager level. And then I was a senior manager when I left. And uh, you, you just get used to working hard and working, you know, 55 hours a week in tax season. It's just something that gets ingrained in you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think that's definitely key. You have to be willing to work a little extra. <laughs> so you mentioned you uh, left to at the point when you were a senior manager, what, what caused you to decide it was time to do something different? When I left, there was a lot of different things going on. And one of which we, we had recently merged with, with Arthur Young. So we became Ernst and Young and it was, it was a great merger for the firm. There were great people at, at Arthur Young that again, I still have friends today that are very successful individuals coming out of their firm and our firm. Also in 19, early 90s was a recession in, in Texas and, and across the country. That was the meltdown of financial institutions. A lot of them went belly up and got bought and closed by the Resolution Trust, the, the, the federal government agency to clean up financial institutions. So it was a combination of, you know, we had, had a surplus of people and we're about to, we were entering a recession and business was down. Uh, we, we actually quit taking business from banks, which was a big part of our practice. And I, I just didn't see the opportunity at that time. So I figured it was a good time to, I felt like good experience and good time to venture out. So, so that I did. Okay. You know, that's interesting. I, I, I'm just realizing you probably, or you were at the same office as Ed Polanski. Yes. Ed was actually ran the small business practice of a, of Arthur Young. And so we actually worked together. He had a, a few individuals, Rick Burr, who ended up going to a, an aircraft interior maintenance company. Uh, he had a lot of great people working for him as well. Ed, the McNeilis, uh, Darren McNeilis, 
became partner, was a partner in Austin at EY. Chris Bruner, managing partner in Philadelphia. Uh, Renee Salas was in uh, the D.C. office, became a partner. So we had, we had a lot of great young people uh, at the time I left. That's interesting. We we just interviewed Ed Polanski for the podcast as well uh, a few weeks ago, and it's that it's that same recession you're referring to that caused him to leave and and start his firm, Polanski McNutt and Perry, which eventually merged into Weaver. Small world. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Laura McNutt, and was that Paul Perry? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So then you you actually went into healthcare, which was one of your specialties. It looks like. It was one of them, and I did go take the controller position at the Baptist Health System, and it was five hospitals, uh, nursing schools, uh, real estate office buildings. It was a, a billion-dollar business, so it was a substantial business, but it was a, a not-for-profit. So I started with them in October of 1992, and the, the CFO at the time was, was Ferdinand Ginzel. And uh, he was, again, one of, one of my great mentors and taught me almost to the time I left. He left, and I actually got appointed CFO shortly uh, before I ended up leaving within a few months. But uh, the, the one big thing about Baptist was Ferd encouraged me, sponsored me to go to graduate school. So in, in 95, while I was the controller at Baptist, and after I'd had two young kids, I commuted and, and went to school to get my master's at UT you know, while I was still working full-time at Baptist. So it was, it was one of the great things I'd do all over again it was ultimately okay. getting my MBA in 97 from UT. Yeah. I was curious about that because I noticed you pursued your MBA later and you were already a CPA by then and you already had substantial experience. I mean, how, how do you feel that's benefited you? Oh, in several ways. And, and again, I, I'd do it again in a heartbeat. The program I would say changes, changed my way of thinking. You know, I was a trained accountant, CPA, really understood accounting and gap financials. And, and it changed my way of thinking into what, what really runs businesses. And one of the underlying themes was, hey, the value of businesses is really the present value of cash flows. And so, you know, you can look at accounting statements all you want, but ultimately you have to do some valuations. And, and so it, I got a lot more finance experience and broadened, broadened experience as a result of the MBA. And not only that, we were grouped in teams. So with my team, we had a, a marketing general manager from Pepsi. We had a plant manager from Motorola. We had another PhD mathematician from Motorola. We had a, an anesthesiologist, a, a cardiac transplant anesthesiologist who, who was getting an MBA degree as well. And it, it was just a great team. So I learned the value of, of teamwork and, and working with a team and, and pulling your weight with the team. And uh, there was nothing that we couldn't do together. And so it, it instilled great, great teamwork value for me. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad that came into the conversation because I had forgotten about that. And, and that, that is a little unique that, that you pursued that later on. Yeah, I, so now, I actually borrowed. I have a school loan and I'm still paying on that school loan, which, which again, I would do multiple times over again. But it, it reminds me of, of what I did and, and how much it cost at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's been a little while. So. <laughs> Yeah. So, so eventually you joined Clear Channel, and I'm assuming it says iHeart, but I believe Clear Channel at the time, right? Yes. Clear Channel 
I had interviewed with Herb Hill and David Wilson probably three times, and they said, yeah, we're growing, we're, we're merging, we're buying companies, we're doing this, we're doing that. And finally, in early 2000, they said, okay, we have a position, you know, we'd like you to come join us. And it was a great position. It was a great opportunity for me because I always thought Clear Channel was, a, was an employer of choice in San Antonio. You know, and I, I perceived those as successful public company, a high growth, good reputation. And it had, it checked all of those boxes for me. And, and Herb had actually worked for me at Clear Channel. I'm not Clear Channel at Ernst & Young way back in the early 80s. So, so it, it, it does reinforce you to never burn any bridges and always, uh, you know, maintain contact with, with people you know and you meet along the way. But he ended up hiring me and it was right before the merger of Clear Channel and, and SFX and Clear Channel and AMFM. So it went to be a, a $8 billion in revenue company in a very short period of time in the, the year 2000. So it was a great opportunity. Wow. How did your role change in that 10-year period? Well, you know, and my title stayed the same. I joined as a VP, as a VP broadcast finance and accounting, and my title stayed the same. But but because of all the things we went through, I did a lot of different things. And, and that's what I would encourage young people is to try new things, try to do different things, take additional responsibility. And by that, I mean, when I first started, it was about integration, integration of acquisitions. And so, so we had, like I said, the two big acquisitions. One was the, the radio business and Clear Channel had a big radio business and acquired another one. We also bought the live entertainment business. And so one of the things Herb asked me to do early on was, was integrate SFX into the, into the clear channel business model. So SFX at the time was based in Houston and live entertainment was a very different business than, than radio or TV broadcasting. So I spent a lot of time going back and forth to Houston, developing relationships with the SFX team, which, which is now Live Nation. Actually, Clear Channel spun it off several years later. It's now a very successful company called Live Nation based in Los Angeles or Beverly Hills. But one of the things that Clear Channel used to do was forecast very, very rigorously. And so when I started working with Live Nation, they would tell me, well, we don't know how many people are going to be at our concerts. We don't know how many you know, concerts, we're going to have a week. We don't know. I said, well, you're going to have to guess and you're going to have a concert as sure as I'm standing here. So, you know, you're going to have a certain size of artists. So I got, you know, had to teach them how to forecast and how to integrate into our forecasting methodology as a public company. You, you got to give guidance and you got to, got to forecast where you're going to be. And so th- there was a, it was a, a very sophisticated forecasting operation at Clear Channel which is what a lot of people don't understand or accountants don't understand. You're not always looking at the past, you know, closing the books, reporting on financial statements of the past, but, but forecasting. And, and we'd spend, we'd get our financials out and, and management would look at it for, you know, a short period of time and they go, okay, how does this affect the forecast? What does this mean for the business going forward? And, and so it really trained us to be, you know, business people and, and think about the future and plan for the future. The other thing about Clear Channel is, is we got, we were so big and grew so fast that I was an accountant, a CPA, and, and I, I did build the accounting staff, the broadcast accounting finance staff, and hired multiple, multiple accountants. 
to build the staff to handle 1,200 radio stations across the country. But the company at the time did not have any risk manager. So, so Herb asked me to start helping with risk management, ma- managing the insurance. And it was a huge undertaking responsibility to one determine, you know, the coverages you need and the basis of the coverage. And so I'd never done it before, but I really enjoyed getting into that. And so I managed that for several years until we actually hired some expertise. We actually changed from a full outside insurer to a self-insured retention. And it it saved the company many millions of dollars because we were paying high insurance fees for something that that we could manage internally. So it was something that I took responsibility for and and, and ended up turning out well. And uh, it's something I had never done before. So again, as an accountant, I I, you know kind of managed people and and, and managed accounting operations, but but had never done that and uh, ended up turning out very well. And also we, we didn't have a procurement function. So I ended up negotiating large purchasing contracts with large vendor providers of the firm as well. And I'd never done that. that, that I, I negotiated the uh, office supply, the, the uh, overnight delivery contracts, several others. And, and again, saving many millions of dollars. And, and so I got to do things. Herb, Herb Hill let me do things that, you know, not a lot of other people would get the chance of doing. So they, they were, they were a great firm, uh, Mark Mays and Randall Mays, great, great people to work for. So I'd, I'd do it again in a heartbeat as well. Interesting. I, how large was it when you joined? You said they were an $8 billion organization. Yeah, it, it became $8 billion that first year because in, oh. I think in April, we merged with AMFM. In August of 2000, we merged with uh, SFX. So all of those, those acquisitions happened within eight months of joining the firm. Okay. Okay. You said Live Nation spun off. I guess what what was the what did the organization look like ten years later when you were making the move? That's a great question. Clear Channel actually got some bad press at the time. They were accused of trying to exclude artists from the radio if they didn't sign up with Clear Channel's concert business. So it actually became kind of a public relations negative for Clear Channel. And so we ended up spinning off Live Nation, spun off Clear Channel Outdoor. I had never worked as part of the outdoor division, but it was a huge profitable division for Clear Channel. And when I joined, it was all under the one umbrella. And and so because of probably, you know, diversification and, and spinning out and raising money, Clear Channel spun out only, I would say, 10% of the shares into uh into the public of Clear Channel Outdoor and retain 90% ownership. So by the time I left, the private equity made a bid for the company, I think in 08, and it took about a year for it to happen. And this was when we were entering a very deep recessionary time and private equity bought, bought in 09. And that, that's primarily why I left is Randall Mays, the CFO left, Herb left, and I left, so we all, the, the private equity guys brought in their own people to run the finance accounting operation. So, so that's when we left. And it was, it was very uh, mixed emotions for me. I, I loved the company, but it was time to move on to a different role. And I didn't have one at the time, but they were very generous to me in my, my transition and my severance. So it helped me smooth the transition. Okay. Okay. I remember when I became aware of Vitacare, as I remember your, your next organization, that Vitacare was funded by investors at the time. And at least 10 years ago, when I became aware of Vitacare, they were marching towards eventually 
selling the organization. That seemed to be the purpose to to build it, eventually sell it, you know, to a larger organization. How did you end up working at Vitacare? And tell us about that experience. Well, that's a good question. So when I say mixed emotions, when I, when I was at Clear Channel and knew I was leaving, I started looking around a little bit, and one one very good recruiter in the San Antonio area gave me about three recommendations and one of them was Vitacare and I can't even remember what the other two were and so I followed up on on those on that advice on those recommendations and I checked into Vitacare and Mark Mellon the former managing partner of Arthur Anderson had just taken the CFO position at Vitacare so and it was oh shucks I hate to see that but things happen so I, I did spend several months making contact with my network of, of, of friends and, and business contacts. And uh, I was actually playing in a golf tournament at Oak Hills with Rob Kaufman, the owner of the New Balance stores. And his wife was Mark Mellon's, one of Mark's elementary school teachers. So he knew Mark. And at the time, he said, Mark just got promoted to CEO of Vitacare. And I said, oh, really? So I called Mark the next Monday. Mark said, hey, can you meet for lunch? We met for lunch. And, and shortly thereafter, he said, yeah, I, you know, I'd like to hire you. So that's how I ended up going to, to Vitacare. And in Vitacare, I was a fit because of my healthcare experience. Even though I'd been 10 years at Clear Channel, I had had four years at Baptist and three years of a CFO of a, of a, a medical group with 50 different doctors, very diversified experience and managed care health plans. So, I, you know, I understood the, the language and lingo of the medical professions and Vitacare's customers were ambulances and hospitals. And so I, I could speak that language pretty easily. So in, in addition, you know, public company experience, managing business, managing the, the operations of, of, of Clear Channel helped me at least have the experience that Mark was looking for. And, and Mark was looking for big four experience as well. Because when, when I joined Vitacare, they had some accounting difficulties. There was a lot of uh, cleanup effort when I first got there. And when I first joined Vitacare, it was a $20 million business. And we were going through the fundraising efforts. And this is something that you asked about. We had, Vitacare had five major venture capital firms as investors not just one or two, but five different ones. And we had gone through several fundraisers before I got there and had to go through a couple more. But each time we had to go back to our existing shareholders, the venture capital firms, and ask them to contribute again. So we were on, by the time we started making money, Series G, we had probably had seven different fundraises and every time you're like oh it's terrible to have to go back and raise money because you, you end up diluting existing shareholders and original shareholders and so but but we were we were still growing i mean it was growing but it was having growing pains and and mark mellon the then ceo his philosophy was we, we got to bring in a team that's going to grow us to the next level so even though it was a small a small firm at the time, small company, 20 million in sales relatively. And I, I again, I'd been at Clear Channel and had 8 billion in sales and we had 25,000 employees. So this was going to a small entrepreneurial, high risk, not a startup, but, but you know, the next stage of, of early, early development, early sales. 
And so, and, and, and Bodicare had never made a profit. It was still losing money. It had, it had gone through 30 million of investor money. So we, we made a, some quick changes, some quick decisions, and primarily of which we moved the warehouse from Dallas to San Antonio, saved a lot of money in the warehousing operations. We decided to hire a domestic sales force instead of going through distributors. And then we also had to change out the ERP system because the existing system was not adequate to what we needed for the business going forward. So we did all that. I started in April of 10. We, had, we did all that in our first year, in the first, you know, first six months that I was there. So, so we made a lot of changes early on, and we started making money right away. We, we had canceled some international operations and contracts that were costly and not, didn't have any return on investment. So we, we very quickly started turning a profit, not a big profit, but, but getting profitable. And we never, ever didn't make a profit thereafter. So we started at 20 million. We, in three years, we went to 70 million in sales. So working with Mark Mellon, who was also a CPA, was great for me because we spoke the same language and we, we had the same high interest in integrity of financial information. We had, a, a, you know, developed over time a, a very good staff. And this is, I'll tell you a little bit about our accounting staff. We started, there were seven, I think seven in the accounting staff when I started. And we went from 20 million to 70 million. We only had 12 accountants when we sold the company to Teleflex. And, and the way we did that was we, we automated everything. We, we were very adamant about automating our reporting, our, our sales tax compliance, our our payroll functions, our add-on accounting, meaning our, our, our financial reporting, budgeting, financial planning, and analysis activities. And I had a great controller, I mean, a great controller who really understood, and we really spoke the same language. And so very, very, very focused on efficiency and automation. And so we, we ran the company that way, I think very efficiently and effectively. So let me also mention one thing other about Vitacare. About a year and a half, I mean, we were making money and, and we were selling internationally. We had a distributor sales channel internationally. And so we started looking at what the distributors were selling for and what we were selling it for and started analyzing our sales from a price volume perspective every month by country. And so we, we determined that, hey, some of our distributors were making more than we were. And our, our chief operating officer liked that structure of sales channel and said, oh, no, we're doing great. We're having double digit increases in sales. And I was saying, no, it's not good for us because they're making more than we are. We're the manufacturer. We're the, the founder, the developer of the product, and they're making more than we are. Well, about two years in, the, the chief operating officer got fired at a board meeting which was unbeknownst to me at the time. I didn't know it was going to happen. I got called back into the board meeting and they said, you're now in charge of, of international operations. And here I am, you know, the accountant. I knew, you know, <laughs> IT, I knew HR, I knew accounting tax, treasury. I, I'd, I'd done that before. I, I'm very comfortable with it. And they said, you're not in charge of international operations. And so we were selling all over Europe. We were getting into Canada. We're, you know, we're in Australia, Asia, but all through distributors. And so the direction Mr. Mellon and I decided was we were going to go direct and hire people directly in multiple countries because we wanted to capture the profit margin that these distributors were capturing. So here we are, little Vitacare, 
and we're firing, not firing, but we're, we're terminating contracts with distributors all over the world and hiring people. And again, that was something I'd never done before. And I'd encourage the county to say, just because you've never done before doesn't mean you can't do it. Mark was very bullish about what we could do and how we could do it. And so we, we had a lot of pushback from our staff saying, no, you can't do that in the UK. You can't do that in France, Germany. You know, you need to keep the distributor relationship. So, and, and Mark was, no, we're doing it. And so both of us got called unnecessarily aggressive by our own, by our own staff because we were going to do it and we were going to roll it out. And that's just what we were going to do. So we did it and we hired people in Germany, in France, in the UK, in Netherlands at first for the first phase. And so we terminated distributors in accordance with our contracts. And there's a lot of stories about that too. There's, there's a lot of friction because you don't terminate your distributors unless you're very successful. So they were very successful. And we had a foundation of sales in those countries. But again, we wanted to capture the profit margin and, and so we did. And, uh, and long story short, oh, this is another story. So, so after we, three months after we went direct in France, Germany, UK, Netherlands, we had good sales, but they weren't, they weren't up to our budget. So I remember going into the office one day, the week before spring break. And, you know, I went into Mark's office and, and Mark said, I need you to go over there. And I said, okay, great. How about after spring break? You know, I'm going to down to the coast with my family, whatever. And he goes, no, I need you to go today. So that day I was on a plane to go meet with all the country managers to go over the plans to jumpstart the business. That's just the way Mark manages it. When he makes a decision, he's ready to move. And we had to move. So I was on a plane that day to London, England, and met with all the country managers to go over their plans for growing the business. And it, it turned out very successful because we, we identified some shortcomings that were occurring, namely the education on the product. And we became very big on the education of the product. And the more we did, the, the better sales were. So it led to us leveraging sales exponentially by identifying the need for education. Well, just to continue that, that theme, uh, we end up going direct in Australia, you know, a country clear across the world in 12 different time zones away. We formed a company, we contracted for a warehouse, we hired people in Australia, we hired people in Canada, and the company became very successful internationally as well as domestically. So again, the, the story, is, and, and, and I was in charge of that, and it was, it was one of the most fun and, and I would say satisfying parts of my career was seeing that and doing it well and, and learning international business. Interesting. And you, you still work with Mark now in the post-body post care sale, I, I believe. I, when I was looking up Clarity to, to do a little pre, pre-podcast research, I, I noticed that he's CEO, correct? Yes. I think we work very well together. We have a great relationship. We're very successful at Vitacare. We end up selling the company for, for nearly $300 million. And the shareholders, the five VC shareholders, and that, that was another, just another story that Mark spent a huge amount of his time managing those five VCs because they all wanted something different. They were all on different time frames based on the funds they were raising and, and the returns they were trying to get. And so 
we got a many mixed signals from our shareholder group about what they wanted to do with the companies. And I think you mentioned, you know, you'd heard rumors, hey, you know, we're building it for sale. Well, there were several in the company that didn't want to sell. We were, we were growing sales by 25%. And ultimately, you end up selling the company for a multiple of revenue. We ended up right about 4x, four times revenue. Well, if we would continue, you know, 25% revenue growth, we were going to grow the valuation very rapidly. But the, but the shareholders who wanted to sell kind of won over when we got up this very attractive offer from Teleflex. And so we, we ended up selling the company and, and Teleflex will tell us to this day, they would love to have another Vitacare because it jump-started their vascular business, their, their vascular product line. I actually got an offer to join Teleflex in Raleigh, North Carolina as the VP finance of their vascular business. But I didn't, I didn't want to move. I couldn't move because my family, my son was still in high school and he had two years left and, and they required me to relocate, which I said, no, I, I can do it by traveling to Raleigh or wherever, but I, I can't move the family at this time. And that was one of my, one, one of the big regrets because Teleflex is just very successful, very real, well-run company, treats their leadership well. And their stock price went from 79 at the time we entered the deal and it's now 190 something so but they've they've been very successful a great medical device uh, company but uh yeah i still mark so when we sold the company in uh, december of 13 i stayed with the company till about april of 14 mark left after one month and mark found another medical device company that we thought you know needed help at the time needed to jumpstart development jumpstart commercial sales very very similar story to vitacare so we found this uh, Clarity Medical Systems and decided to do it again. Wonderful. You know, I wonder, you, you said something earlier, and I can't remember what the exact quote is, but that made me think of this. Your career, you, you've definitely worked hard. You've definitely taken some risks that have definitely paid off. It, is there any, any risk you didn't take that, looking back, you wish you would have tried? Any moves Yeah, that, that's take? a great question. So, you know, when I... Just staying with Ernst for 12 years is a very, it was a very safe position for the most part. I mean, I, I thought I performed well, you know, and the, my mentor said, yeah, you're performing well, you know, you're still doing well. But, you know, just staying with one company, even at that time, was, I'd say, a non-risk-taking position. And then taking a position with Baptist, which was a not-for-profit, faith-based entity, was, it was safe. I mean, it was a huge business billion dollars but it was the mba you know a lot of people they talk about that this was not the normal mba but the the one you take when you're working i forget what they they call it executive mba i think yeah executive mba and and at the time they said yeah high percentage of our people end up you know leaving their current positions for other positions because they want to take more risk well i I did that too and i left baptist and, and i went to actually a company that was a pioneer in physician practice management. So I got stock options. I thought, hey, this is going to be great. It was growing at the time. It was a hot commodity back in 96. And long story short, it, it flamed out. Managing physicians was not, it's just not what it's, you know, what it was cut out to be or what it was thought to be at the time. They're very difficult to manage. And that company couldn't couldn't manage them, nor nor anybody else. There is no physician practice management company now, other than hospitals who who have acquired physician practice 
because of the Affordable Care Act, but and and uh, healthcare economics. But so at the time, I it was I took a chance, and boy, that that those stock options were worth the the wallpaper on the wall. You know, and again, I joined Clear Channel, and Clear Channel was blowing and going. So it was, although it was risky, it was a huge company, but it was for profit. It was like, hey, if I get, you know, get some options, I get some, you know, some stock, I'm going to do well. And and so it was kind of a balance between risk and reward or risk and conservatism. Well, over time, Clear Channel, it, it just, it didn't pan out. At the time, it was blowing and going because of the dot-com boom, and the stock got run up significantly and and the stock never it went down the whole time i was at clear channel so you know by the time i left even staying 10 years was i wish i'd have left sooner and found something like vodicare and even mark both of us say hey we we wish we were doing this you know younger in our careers because we'd like to do it over and over again so you know something like vodicare this this business at clarity it's a small it's a very risky enterprise that you know it may or may not go but if it goes, you know, we're, we're going to be rewarded. There you go. There you go. Well, it's, it's sort of like being a, a VC, but with your time instead of money. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And that one thing you, you, it is, there is undiversified risk for us at one institution versus these VCs invest in, in multiple enterprises and, and that not all of them hit, but if they get one or two that hit it big, then it justifies and they get great returns on their on their portfolio of companies. So mm, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I also never left San Antonio when there was a lot of opportunity in, in other big cities, Houston, Dallas, you know, always was the big city with greater opportunity. And I, for my family stayed in San Antonio and, and it sometimes wish, I, you know, would have considered opportunities outside the city. Okay. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and I do have a few questions that I end every podcast with. And this has been excellent. Thank you very much, Rick. The first question I ask every guest, what has been your proudest moment? Personal or professional, but what's been your proudest I moment? I think my proudest moment is when I was with Ernst, I was in charge of recruiting for, for many years, in the later years in the firm, and, and really enjoyed recruiting people off university campuses, UT Austin, UTSA, Texas A&M, Trinity, St. Mary's, Southwest Texas, those were the primary schools we recruited from. And, and I actually love recruiting good people and seeing them grow and develop and, and be successful in their careers. And as I mentioned, several of them have become very successful partners in public accounting, uh, very successful in, in other firms. Even at Baptist, I hired a lady who was a degreed HR, had an HR degree, and she couldn't find a job. And I said, well, I can hire you as, a, as an admin right now, but I don't have another position. Well, I hired her. She actually took accounting classes, took the CPA exam, graduated, I mean, passed the CPA exam. And, and to this day, she's the CFO of a hospital in Lubbock, Texas. And so that's my proudest moment is to develop young people and, and, and see them grow and be successful. Yeah, that, that, that is very rewarding. Well, tell us about the mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course. And, and frankly, the bigger, the better. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I guess the one, one I'll tell you about is when I was at Baptist Medical Systems, the company was very manual-based when I joined. They were still, this was 
1992 and they were still using uh, pencils, paper, spreadsheets. And this is after, you know, there, there was computers and PCs and laptops and spreadsheets and they were still, you know, using pencil and paper. And I remember one time a lady gave me the spreadsheet and said, you know, she, they had like 13 million of investments. And she said, I'm, I'm off, you know, a few pennies. I go, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Just pass. You can pass on that. But one of the things we decided to do was automated check printing. They were still, they were still writing out checks. And so we bought this, this kind of fancy check. It would uh, folder, stuffer, sealer, printer. And so to do that, we needed a whole new check stock. Well, we, we received the draft of the check stock and I didn't really look at it carefully. I think yeah, it looks okay. And we started using that check stock and all of a sudden we had a bank calling us and go, Hey, there are people presenting us checks and you don't have an account with us. And at the time we had used Frost National Bank as our commercial banker. Well, I didn't check over that draft of the checks and it said the first national bank. And so the first national bank was calling, going, Hey, you wrote, you wrote all these checks on first national bank. And uh, you know, Hey, they're, they're wrong. What are you going to do? about and, and we had spent probably, you know, at the time, $5,000 on check stock on, on getting this check stock. So I thought, Oh no, I'm going to have to tell my boss. I, you know, didn't review the check stock. And <laughs> And, you know, at the time, you know, it's just money. I just hated to spend money the wrong way or, you know, making a mistake. And, and as I told you, Ferdinand Genzel was a CFO and he said, you know, he was very understanding. He said, Hey, that's don't worry. That's not the worst thing that could happen. You didn't make a decision to deny a patient a care and then, then have them, you know, something happened to him later on, you know, th this is just money. And so he was, he was very understanding, but, but also, Hey, Hey, you need to, the attention to detail needs to be there and in, in taking care of your business. So, but it was something that I, I'll never forget. Hey, yeah. That take care of yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a good story. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I would have thought to check the account number, but I don't know if I would have looked at the name of the bank. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're talking fine print between First and Frost, and uh, it's just one of those things, I guess. Well, last question. What's the best advice you've ever received? Well, I, I've received a lot of good advice over the years. I'm going to go back to, again, one of my mentors, uh, Herb Hill at Clear Channel. When we had issues, he would always, always go back to his principles whenever we were trying to solve a problem. And and he was very principled, very faith-based, and was, was an absolutely great leader. And it was because he always stayed true to those principles. And he would always ask, why are we doing this? And what are we doing it for? And what is our purpose? And how does this fit in our, in our framework? And so that was always, I guess, the best, the best advice I always got was stay, stay true to your principles. And we made, you know, good decisions because of it. We had a very good run and then a very positive career experience uh, because of that. So oh, oh, I'm going to go with that. Wonderful. Well, well, that's, yes, that's very valid. Very valid. Stay true to your principles. Well, thank you very much, Rick. I, I really appreciate it. I, I knew we'd have some exciting stories, but I didn't anticipate the, the whole lesson about getting your MBA later and, and how that basically uh, launched you into being slightly more risky with your career, which has paid off. 
Yeah, slightly more lesson. risky and, and, and able to, you know, take on new things, and, and operations and, and leadership. And just uh, the advice, young accountant, don't be afraid to take responsibility and leadership and, and you will grow because of it. Yes, yes. I think you're the first guest we've had on that the first accountant that built an international sales team, too. That's that's really unique. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an invaluable experience learning the, you know, how to have a labor group or a sales force in those multiple countries and which countries you would want to do business in and which ones you wouldn't. Yeah. Well, thank you again for your time. I hope to run into you at a CPA meeting here sometime soon. Well, I hope so, Mark. You have a good day. We'll talk to you later. As I mentioned, Rick's story of working with EY and Clear Channel would be interesting enough to have on the show, but the experience with Vitacare and the eventual sale of that organization make it just that much better. I found the discussion about how he attained his MBA later in life and how that influenced his career direction to be very interesting as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. We're a production of whereaccountsgo.com, a career site for accountants with links to all the different certification options available for accounting professionals, as well as an events page and a job board. I'm also very happy to announce and very humbled to announce that as we were recording this episode, the podcast overall surpassed the 10,000 download mark. I'm just so happy that it's beneficial to you. Thank you so much for continuing to listen in on our interviews with everyday heroes in the accounting profession. Join us again next week for another interview with another VIP from the accounting world. I'm Mark Goldman, your host for the show, and we'll see you next week. There's more to come.